0: So let, let us get us started with prayer, and then I'll turn this over to Eric. Dear Lord, thank you for your goodness and kindness. And we thank you that you give us the opportunity to gather together and to look into the scriptures. Help Eric as he teaches us in Joel. May we learn what you've said and how it applies. And we pray that you be with us this whole morning as we um, put ourselves under the means of grace. In Jesus'
1: name we ask. Amen. Amen. Oh, it's good to be with everyone. I, I have Joel 2, 28 through 32. Now today, we're going to be building off of what we looked at last time, which was a temporary restoration that God would give if the Israelites did repent. And so today, we're going to be looking at the ultimate restoration that comes through the sending of the Holy Spirit. And my prayer is that we would understand not only the significance for what God has done in sending the Spirit at Pentecost, because we're gonna look and see that Peter cites this in Acts at the very first giving of the Spirit in Pentecost, but we also wanna see the significance of what God's going to do for us in the future that is in the eschatological day. Now, let me just point out in this first slide that indeed God promised In Deuteronomy 28, that's in the law, that if the Israelites would repent of their idolatry, he would restore them by giving them their crops. He would send rain, but he would also remove their enemies. Now, what's interesting is that's going to be built off of for the future, where God would pour out his spirit and remove the enemies once and for all. And so I want you to see that. Think about this. Now, that is what I mean by now, by the way, in the red is in Joel's day, God would pour out his rain and that would restore the crops. So remember the judgment because of idolatry was God sending drought and the locust plague to remove their crops, just as he promised to do in Deuteronomy 28. Well, in Joel 2:23, God, God says through Joel, if you repent, I'm going to reverse that. I'll send rain. I'll pour it out. But in the future, in the last days, God would pour out his spirit. And that's going to lead not just to a temporary restoration, but the ultimate restoration. A forgiveness of sins where they trust in the Messiah and he reigns forevermore in their midst. That's what we're going to be seeing today in Joel 2.28. Now let's go back to Joel's day. Remember in Joel 2.19, God promised to remove the northern army. The northern armies were the Assyrians. Later, the Babylonians. And again, why did God send them? Because they would never repent. They kept going into idolatry. So the promise is if they would repent, God would remove them. And he did for a period. Remember, he did bring Israel back into the land. They did get a rebuilt temple, which lasted all the way until 70 AD. But the great promise that Joel's giving us in the passage today is that one day God is going to remove the armies finally and forever. And we're going to see that when we get into Joel chapter 3. Okay, so today, Joel 2, through 32 sets us for the, up for the context of Joel chapter 3, where God will restore them ultimately, but all is made possible by the pouring out of the Spirit. And so let's begin by looking at this ultimate restoration. Joel 2, 20 through 29, notice here what he says. He says, it will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, dear ones, I want you to notice here in the box that phrase, it will come about after this. It's very significant because we understand from the Septuagint that it's literally after these things. And the apostle Peter understood that phrase as referring to the last days. So when Peter looked at Joel 2.28 and he saw what was occurring on the day of Pentecost, he concluded this was the beginning of the last days. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts 2.17. Turn your Bibles to Acts 2.17 because I want you to see how Peter understood this phrase. It's exceedingly important. We can't gloss over this because if we don't understand it's referencing the last days, we're going to be left out in, uh, in left field or right field, however you want to put it. So notice Acts 2.17. Notice what Peter says. He says, it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So notice, again, in the box, Peter applies this to the last days. Now, let me look at this the little schematic that I have at the bottom of the screen with you. I'm going to be pointing to it. I want you to notice that the old age, think of the old age as dominated by the law, and it's dominated by sinful man's inability to obey the law. And this old age, which was characterized by sin and death because of our inability, would last until there was an inbreaking of the messianic age. And so the beginning of the Messianic age really began with the sending of Christ, but he himself is the one who sends the Spirit. So the sending of Christ, who then sends the Spirit, inaugurates the last days. And so notice, dear ones, I have on your, um, by the way, on your handout, it'll say church age, because I want you to see that they're synonymous. Theologians will often refer to the last days as the church age. But the last days that we're in, Notice we have a blending, in a sense, of the old age. Okay, in other words, there's still sin, there's still rebellion, there's still not a universal belief in the Messiah, Uh, they won't acquiesce to his laws, and this will go on as Christ builds his kingdom by sending the Spirit upon all mankind until he returns and subdues all of his enemies. Notice that will happen at this point, and then the old age is done. The last days are complete, and the messianic age is ushered in. Okay, so in a sense, on our diagram, this is the first advent. Jesus Christ comes, and he sends the Spirit. This is his second advent, where Jesus Christ comes a second time, and he reigns over the entire world. What what Joel understood, what the apostle Peter understood, was that in the last days, God would pour out his Spirit— And he would build a kingdom that's what's occurring in the last days that's what bob has been teaching us in the book of ephesians that god is building a one new man both of jew and gentile all those who will come to faith and the spirit is enabling that now i want you to notice in blue on the screen just as god poured out rain again we saw that in joel 2 23 here he's pouring out his spirit on all mankind Well, why is that important? What Joel wants us to understand is the pouring out of rain, yes, that'll give you crops, but the pouring out of the Spirit will bring better fruit altogether because it brings you to faith in the Messiah where you have the forgiveness of sins. And so I want you to see this idea of pouring out like water or rain was something that God used as a metaphor when he would refer to the sending of the Spirit. In fact, I want you to see this is used in other passages turn your bibles if you will to isaiah 44:3. 3 please turn your bibles to isaiah 44:3. and as you're turning there realize we could look at many passages in isaiah and really through the prophets where this idea of pouring out the spirit was something that god had promised but we'll start with isaiah 44:3. and as you turn there this is a promise that was given to israel remember as isaiah wrote his book he did so during the fall of Judah. Israel had primarily already perished at the hands of the Assyrians, all because of idolatry. But here in Isaiah 44 and many other passages, we see the idea of restoration. Notice what it's linked to, Isaiah 44:3, God promises, he says, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Now, in that passage, there's some debate. Is there, but notice the first clause says, he will pour out water on the thirsty land. Is that a reference to physical restoration? Whereas the pouring out of the spirit is spiritual restoration, that's possible. But it's also possible that this is what's called synonymous parallelism, where Isaiah simply stating what he means by the pouring out of water is really the pouring out of the spirit. But at the end of the day, in Joel's day, it was both and. The pouring out of the water was for a limited restoration, but it foreshadowed the coming day where God would pour out his spirit on his people, enabling them to believe, giving them a circumcised heart that he had commanded them to do, which they couldn't in Deuteronomy chapter 10. We'll talk about that later on. So that's the great promise. Restoration was always accompanied and made possible by the messiah and the sending of the spirit. That's what we have to understand. Now, let me have you turn to another passage. Turn your Bibles if you will to Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. Zechariah 12 verse 10. Please turn your Bibles there. And the reason I want you to see Zechariah 12:10 is I want you to see that in particular Israel will one day be given the spirit under the new covenant, and they will be brought to faith in the Messiah. I know I've showed you this before, but you're going to see the same phrase, pour out. Again, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Now, as you turn there, remember the great promise in Zechariah 12 through 14 is really about the second advent of Christ, the second coming of Messiah. But Israel, up until this point in history, has not believed upon the Messiah, even though the Spirit has been poured out, but that's going to be reversed. Still in the last days, God has promised that he will bring Israel to faith, and here we see it in Zechariah 12.10. And by the way, before I read this, this is where I think Paul was getting his theology from, of course, Jesus Christ revelation as well, but in Romans 11.26, when he says all Israel would be saved. Notice Zechariah 12.10, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. Now, stop there for just a moment. Notice what is God going to pour out on the house of David? It's the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit that gives grace and supplication. That's the implication. Okay? So the Holy Spirit is going to be merciful to them, gracious to them, giving them the ability to do what they can't do for themselves, and he's going to give them the ability to go to God. Notice it says, so that, here's the purpose. What's going to happen when he gives the Spirit? It's so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now remember, in the Gospel of John, John cites Zechariah 12.10 as being partially fulfilled at the crucifixion of Christ, but he doesn't cite the whole verse. He leaves off that portion where it says, and he will bring them to mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. You see, yes, Israel at Jesus Christ's crucifixion, they looked upon the one whom they pierced, but they never mourned for him in mass. So what Zechariah 12.10 is telling us is that when the Spirit comes upon Israel, they're going to be brought to faith. They're going to be brought so that they mourn for what they did to the Messiah, that they crucified him rather than trusting him as their long awaited Messiah, their savior. And again, this is all going to be made possible by the sending of the spirit. Now, one thing I want to mention is I want to talk a little bit about baptism. We just had a baptism that was very beautiful. A Nancy Mary Hart had one a few weeks ago. And one of the things that baptism symbolizes is the work of the spirit. And just jot this verse down. You don't have to turn to it, but in Titus 3, 5, it talks about the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. That's one of the things that baptism symbolizes. Baptism doesn't accomplish that, but it symbolizes it. Okay, so baptism symbolizes regeneration by the water, like pouring of the Spirit. It represents the washing away of our sins, as Paul talks about in Acts 22:16. It it refers to our death, burial, resurrection with Christ, Romans 6, 1 through 4. But if you pull all those images together, it's about being with Christ. Now, look at the diagram again with me. At first, the first advent of Christ, we're baptized in him. So notice on the screen, but when Jesus leaves, he sends us the spirit and we're baptized in the spirit. And so we're in the sphere of the spirit and he takes care of us. So he enables us to understand the things of the scriptures. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the spirit is at work in these last days to bring people to faith in the Messiah so that God can build the one new man, as Bob has been teaching us in the book of Ephesians. Okay, now, one of the things we have to also consider is what is the extent of the recipients of the spirit? Notice the spirit isn't just going to come upon a mediator of the covenant like Moses, it's not gonna just come upon, he's not gonna just come upon the prophets or the apostles, but notice the promise, it's for your sons and your daughters. Okay, now let me just stop there. Remember in Israel, women did not have the same rank or prestige and uh, status as men did. But here, when the Holy Spirit is sent out, it doesn't matter. The gender, it's gonna come upon son and daughter They're going to prophesy. We'll talk about that in a moment. Notice the old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Notice it's male, female servants even. So how lowly a status can you have uh, beneath a servant? There isn't any lowlier status, okay? So a servant is even going to receive this. So the extent of the pouring out of the Spirit isn't limited merely to Moses, for example, or the prophets. Now, Let me show you where that's a big, big promise back in the law itself. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Numbers 11, 25 through 29. Turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 11, verses 25 through 29. And the reason I want you to turn there is I want you to see that there was a great promise and really a prayer by Moses in the Old Testament where he longed for the day where the Spirit wouldn't just be upon him, Or the prophets that God would send, but that the spirit would come upon all of God's people. Okay, so that's one of the great promises. It's not limited to an office holder of the prophet, but it's for all of God's people. Notice what happens now as you turn to Numbers 11, 25 through 29. Remember, in the context, Moses was having difficulty ruling the people of Israel alone. Why? Because he was one man. So God in his wisdom gave him 70 elders. And these 70 elders are going to be also given a portion of the Holy Spirit. And notice what happens. Numbers 11, 25. It says, then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And he took of the Spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. Now, stop there for just a moment. It's very important that we see the Spirit came upon these 70 What did it result in? It resulted in them prophesying, but very importantly, it says they did not do it again. In other words, this wasn't something that they did over and over for the rest of their lives as Moses did, because God is still maintaining the uniqueness of Moses as the one who uniquely speaks for him, the one who uniquely met with him on the mountain, who spoke face to face with God. Okay, so the reason why they only did this once was to demonstrate that, yes, indeed, God has ordained them under Moses to be ministers of God. But they didn't keep prophesying so as to show the uniqueness still that Moses had as the mediator and prophet par excellence of the old covenant. Now, let's keep going in verse 26. Notice it says, but two men had remained in the camp. In other words, they didn't go to the tent. It says they remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. Verse 27, it says, so a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. So notice Moses' prayer is that one day God would put his spirit not just on the prophet but upon all the people, in a sense that all the people would be like prophets. Now, what we have to understand is when we get to Joel, Joel, I believe, was a ninth-century prophet. He is reiterating that this promise is coming, that this is going to be fulfilled. And when Peter cites this passage in Pentecost, he's saying it's finally here. The promise that Moses alluded to in, in Numbers chapter 11 At Pentecost, Peter is saying, that's here now. That's the significance that we are to see. Now, what does it mean that the Spirit would be given to every single person? Well, again, it's significant for two reasons. Let me make two caveats. Number one, all of God's people are going to be given the Spirit, not just the mediator of the old covenant, Moses. One day it's going to come upon all people who belong to God. Second, We have to understand that not all prophecy is the same. We have to distinguish between the office and the functional use of prophecy. Okay, now let me lay this out carefully for you. Remember in Ephesians 2.20, Bob taught us this very well. The church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. That foundation was laid once and for all. And when we get to Ephesians 4.11, we see that when Christ ascended, He sent us gifts. The first one is the Holy Spirit, who gives us what? Apostles and prophets. Now, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Ephesians 4.11, but when you put the context of Scripture together, that's the point. The Spirit gives us gifts. Okay, so the foundation of the apostles and prophets that was laid, okay, that's already been placed before us. Now, to prove that we don't have the office of prophets today, I want you to turn to another passage Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 29. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 29. Because again, what I want to show you is that the office of prophet is unique. We have that once and for all at the first century with the apostles. Okay. But I'm also going to prove to you from 1 Corinthians that there's a functional sense that all Christians can prophesy. Okay. And we'll prove that. Notice 1 Corinthians 12, 29. Please turn your Bibles there. And here, remember, Paul's talking about the gifts given by the Spirit. So when Jesus Christ ascended, he gave us the Spirit, he baptizes us in the Spirit, places us in his control and care, and the Spirit dispenses gifts. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians 12, 29, notice Paul is showing that the whole body is needed. Why? Because not everyone has the same gifting or office. Notice he says, 1 Corinthians 12, 29, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? Now, I know there's a lot of questions there. They're all rhetorical. And a rhetorical question demands an obvious answer. When he's asking the question, not all are apostles, are they? He's not expecting you to say, well, yeah, I think some of them are, or all of them are. No, he's expecting you to say, yeah, of course, not all of them are. And so when he asks the question, not all are prophets, are they? The obvious implied answer is no. Not everyone is a prophet. Why? Because that foundation was laid once and for all with the apostles in the new covenant. And even when we get to teachers and those who work miracles, those things aren't for everyone. It's just for some. Okay, so there's a need, therefore, for the entire body. All right? Now, that's the office of prophet. Not all were prophets, okay? Even though everyone is given the Spirit, not everyone is a prophet in the sense that they write Scripture, like, for example, Mark did, or Luke, who were both under apostolic authority, okay? So what kind of prophecy, then, do we do, being that we have been given the Spirit upon all Christians? What kind of prophesying do we do? We do it in a functional sense, Okay. one of the analogies I gave some months ago to this is think about the police are ordained in our government to go chase down bad guys. Right. They have a badge and they've got the the gun. And I know um, a lot of the mayors in the United States aren't allowing that to occur. But ideally, they're ordained to go after bad guys and restrain evil. But some of you have uh, permits to carry pistols. And yes, if some bad guy robs a bank, you're not going to get called. Thank the Lord. We're going to call the police. But if some bad guy does something to innocent people and tries to harm them, and you happen to be there with no police officer, you're deputized. You're acting in a functional sense as the officer. Not because you have the office of the officer, but because in a functional sense, you're morally bound to restrain that evil that's occurring. In the same way, just as you and I don't have the office of prophet, we in a functional sense can still prophesy by giving implications and applications and our understanding of Scripture so that others may be edified. Now, the proof of this functional sense of prophecy that the Spirit gives every Christian is found, I believe, in 1 Corinthians 14.31. Please turn your Bibles ahead two chapters. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 31. And again, what we're wrestling with is what is the extent of this pouring out of the spirit? Oh, well, yes, he gave offices, but the offices of apostles and prophets didn't last, but he does give us all the ability to prophesy in a functional sense of understanding the scriptures, giving implications and applications of scripture. Notice first Corinthians 14 31. Here's the proof that I would give That prophecy isn't just for a prophet who has the office, but it's for every believer. 1 Corinthians 14, I hope you've turned to that, verse 31. Notice, Paul says, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the debate of this verse. Some scholars would claim that when it says you can all prophesy one by one, They would argue that all there isn't referring to every Christian, but all of the prophets because of the the context. The problem with that is in this very verse, follow the logic, if all are prophesying, all can prophesy, notice one by one, it's so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Notice that? Well, are we gonna say, well, only all the prophets may learn and only all the prophets may be exhorted? No. The obvious implication is so that all Christians may learn, all Christians may be exhorted. Therefore, the prophesying has to do with all Christians. Not in the sense that we're giving new revelation. No, that was for the office of the apostles and prophets. But all of us can prophesy in the functional sense of understanding the scriptures, giving implications of the scriptures, applications of the scriptures. That's what we do. We rely upon the office holders, the apostles and prophets for revelation, but we can also prophesy in the sense that we help people understand the scriptures and how they apply. That's how Paul understood the functional sense of prophecy. So, dear ones, do you see then the great promise is that under the old covenant, yes, it was Moses who had revelation, it was Moses who had the spirit, and yes, the 70 who were to work with him, but he looked forward to a day when all of God's people would be given the spirit and they also would prophesy that was fulfilled at Pentecost. Okay, so let's move on here to our second uh, slide here. And by the way, I will leave off uh, some time to ask questions and give comments. We won't get through this entire PowerPoint probably today. There's just a lot of meat here. But one thing I wanna show you on this next slide Is I want you to see that not only did Moses foretell the coming of the Spirit, not only did Joel do it in Joel chapter 2 that we're reading, not only did Jeremiah do it in Jeremiah 31 through 34, excuse me, chapters 31 through 34, not only did Ezekiel do it in Ezekiel 36, but Jesus foretold the work of the Spirit. Okay, so the sending of the Spirit, Bob and I have used this term, is the sine qua non, the essential ingredient without which you don't have the new covenant. So if you don't have the spirit, you don't have the new covenant era. It's that essential. Notice what Jesus himself said. This is in John chapter 7 during the Feast of Tabernacles. John 7, 37 to 39, it says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, dear ones, let me remind you of the context. Remember, this is, notice on the screen, it was the last day, the great day of the feast. Now, what feast was going on? It was the Feast of Tabernacles. And there is some debate as to whether or not the last day was an eighth day or a seventh day. Technically, in the scriptures, it was to be a seven-day feast. But according to the Talmud and according to Josephus, there was also an eighth day connected to it. Whatever it was, it was the last day of the feast, whether it was the eighth or the seventh. And remember, the whole week during this feast, the whole seven days, what would occur in Jesus' day is the high priest would have an entourage of the other priests, and they would go down to the pool of Siloam. They would fill a huge golden flag and a huge bucket full of water, and in a very priestly-like procession, they would bring it all the way up to the temple, and they would pour it out on the altar. And the reason they would do that day after day is it commemorated, number one, God's provision in the wilderness, that yes, he quenched the Israelites' thirst miraculously and provided for them. But it also remembered the fact that God provided them their crops, just as he promised in Deuteronomy 28. But it also looked forward to the fact that not only did God provide the water for their crops and their sustenance prior in the Exodus, but it also looked forward to a time when God would pour out his spirit just as Moses and Joel had prophesied. And so I want you to see then that Jesus is standing up at that last day. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, what does it mean that if you're thirsty, you are to come to Jesus and drink? Well, he's picking up on this theme of the living water that comes forth from God. But notice he explains his metaphor in verse 38. He explains it, what he means by drinking. He says, he who believes in me. So notice on the screen, the drinking of Jesus Christ is a metaphor for what? Believing in him. Okay, so don't get confused by the metaphor to say, well, how do I drink of Jesus? He explains it, that you're to believe in him. That's how you're to drink in the living water. Right, why? Because the Messiah is the one who inaugurates this messianic age. He's the one who forgives sins. He's the one who's going to dispense the spirit. He's the one who makes all of this possible. All right. Now, notice also the great promise from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I love this. Dear ones, think about this. Throughout the scriptures, the living waters are promised to come from God. And one day they're going to come from his temple as Jesus Christ reigns. In fact, over and over in the scriptures, and I'll show you these things, the temple is seen as the place from where the living waters flow. But isn't it interesting, Jesus here is saying that if you come to him in faith, living waters are going to come from you. Why? Because as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.19, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay. But let me show you where this idea of living waters are going to flow from the work of the Spirit made possible by the work of the Messiah. Notice the invitation that Jesus borrowing from is actually in Isaiah, when he says, come to me and drink. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 55.1, Isaiah 55.1. And the reason you wanna turn here is because this is a promise we see not just in the Old Testament, but by Jesus here in John 7, but also in Revelation 21. In a sense, the entire Bible is filled with this invitation and command to come and drink of the living waters which means believe in Jesus. Notice Isaiah 55.1, great promise. This is what Jesus is building off of. He's showing that he's the fulfillment of the servant passages of Isaiah 53, Isaiah 55. That's what he's showing, that he is indeed the servant of Yahweh. He's the one who fulfills it. Isaiah 55, one. notice it says, ho that everyone who thirsts come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. So just as we saw in Isaiah 44.3, we see it again here in Isaiah 55.1. We find it again in Isaiah 58.11. We see it in Revelation chapter 21, verse 6. Over and over, there's a command and an invitation to come to the living waters. And what does it mean to, to drink of it? It means to come to faith in the Messiah. That's what it means, okay? Now, I wonder if I've got a passage here to show you. You know what I did? I didn't put down a passage. I was going to have you turn your Bibles to another passage, but I didn't put it down myself. So let me just cite these passages. You can look them up at another time. Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12, jot that down. Zechariah 14, 7, Revelation 22, 1 through 2. All of those are verses that refer to how the waters will flow from the Lord's temple. But again, because you believe in Jesus, what Jesus is saying is from you, from your innermost being, you'll have rivers of living water flowing. Why? Because you, when you come to Christ, are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you will remain the temple of the Spirit until Messiah comes and he sets up his temple, literally, again in Jerusalem okay so for now you're the priesthood for now during the church age you're the one who is the temple of the holy spirit who can bring living waters to other people so think about that significance when you go out to your workplace people aren't able to go anywhere and find out who god is other than from believers that's why bob has labored the point that we have a priesthood of every believer we see that throughout the scriptures How are people gonna know who Jesus is? Well, they're gonna find out from believers. Why? Because from us flow the living waters. We're the ones who can also say, hey, come and drink, come and believe in the Messiah for the forgiveness of sins. You too will be filled by the spirit. You too will be enabled to overcome sin and to do that which is pleasing to him. That's the idea. Now, what's interesting is notice in blue here in verse 39, just so that we're clear, John says, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So because Jesus had not yet ascended, the Spirit had not yet come. So Jesus' work was necessary to inaugurate this age of the Spirit. So remember Isaiah 61.1, the Messiah was the one who was endowed with the Spirit. He was anointed with the Spirit. He's also the one who sends the Spirit, according to Acts 2.33. So Jesus Christ makes the work of the Spirit possible. Why? Because through his work, he makes the forgiveness of sins possible through his atoning work. Okay, so think of it this way. The Father makes the plan. Jesus carries, carries out the plan. And the Holy Spirit enables the plan and appropriates it to our lives. Okay, Father plans. Son carries out the Holy Spirit enables us and appropriates it to our life. All right, so again, that's why Christ's first advent was absolutely essential and ushered in the last days. All right, now, I want you to see that this work of the Son and the Spirit, I think, is being depicted even in the millennial kingdom. Notice what it says here in Zechariah 14, 8 through 11. The messianic age, remember, was inaugurated by the sending of the Son who sent the Spirit. I think you see the same thing when it's consummated when the Messiah is reigning from Jerusalem. Notice the imagery, Zechariah 14, 8 through 11. Now remember, all the enemies of God have come against Jerusalem. The Messiah came, he he wiped them out. He's now set up his kingdom. So we're looking at the millennial kingdom. This is what characterizes the kingdom. It says in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Stop there. Living waters will flow from Jerusalem, why? Because that's where the Messiah is. That's where God is residing. This spirit will bring life from Jerusalem. Notice half of them go toward the Eastern Sea and the other half towards the Western Sea. The Western Sea would have been the Mediterranean. The Eastern would have been the Dead Sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. Now, stop there for just a moment. Notice the living waters are flowing to the Eastern Sea and the Western Sea. It's interesting in Ezekiel 47, it talks about how the Eastern Sea, the Dead Sea will actually bring forth life. Okay and I've used that for a proof of the millennial kingdom why because we don't have the dead sea bring forth life now in the church age and there's going to be no more sea in the eternal states okay so obviously this has to have a millennial kingdom for the dead sea to bring forth life okay so that's also another passage to look up but that's an excuse me it's Ezekiel 47 notice here in verse 9 it says and the Lord will be king over all the earth and that day the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain. People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Dear ones, notice the great promise. The three things in blue, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Because the Messiah is reigning in Jerusalem, there's going to be life. Remember, there's going to be no more war. There'll be no more death on God's holy mountain. There's going to be living waters as a result of the work of the Son and the Spirit. Notice also what's going to happen is there's no longer going to be idolatry. Notice it says the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day, the Lord will be the only one. There won't be Buddha. There won't be people who will argue with you and say, well, I think Allah is a true God. There won't be people who say, I think Muhammad is a good prophet. There won't be people who will say, well, I think Joseph Smith has something to say in the Book of Mormon. There won't be people who will say those things. Oh, if they do, it'll be required of them. They will not be tolerated. No, there's going to be one Lord. There's going to be one God. What a day that will be. No more idolatry. What was the problem in Joel? Why was this all necessary, the sending of the Spirit? Because of idolatry, people who are sinners long to serve the creation rather than the creator who is forever praised. That's all going to be thrown down. Why? because of the work of the Son and the Spirit, the living waters will flow from Jerusalem. Notice the final thing. Verse 11, Jerusalem will what? dwell in security. Have you noticed that's happening in the church age? No. In fact, we've just had rockets thrown at them again. Is it gonna happen in the 70th week of Daniel? No, they're gonna be under the greatest pressure. In fact, that's called the time of Jacob's great distress in Jeremiah 30, verse seven. So when is this going to occur? It's gonna occur in the millennium when the Son and the Spirit, Yahweh himself, reigns from Jerusalem. That's the great promise. So not only does the Son inaugurate the coming of the Messianic age, he's also going to consummate it. And it's characterized by what? Living waters. Living waters that bring the end of sin and rebellion and bring true life. That's the great promise that we see inaugurated at Pentecost. That's the great promise that we see given by Joel in Joel chapter 2. Beautiful. Okay, now let's talk about these signs. And I got eight minutes here. I want to leave some time off. So let's get into this and then we'll leave for questions and comments. Let's talk about Joel 2.30-31. 30 Continue on. Notice here he's continuing on after the giving of the Spirit. Joel 2.30-31, 30 he says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord appears or comes here as it is rendered in the new American standard Bible. Now, dear ones, these signs are referred to it. Notice the blood, the fire, the columns, the smoke. Notice we have a reference again to the sun and the moon being darkened. There's going to be cosmic disturbances. My claim is that all of these signs are going to occur not during the church age, or even in the last days, but rather, it's going to occur in the 70th week of Daniel in the last seven years. And so we have to understand is that the last days usher in the ability for these things to happen or the, the, uh, it's the arena in which these events can occur. So in other words, if Jesus doesn't come to inaugurate the last days, these things can't happen. Why? Because these things are the end of the age. All right. The 70th week of Daniel. All right. Now, one thing I want to talk about is notice this phrase where it says before the great and awesome day of the Lord. This seems to indicate that there are precursors prior to the day of the Lord. According to Joel, the sun is going to be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, meaning there's going to be cosmic disturbances. And that's going to happen. What? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, how do we understand that in light of the teaching in scripture that the day of the Lord comes imminently, that it's always at hand, that there's nothing that will tip you off as to when it comes? After all, Jesus says it comes like a thief in the night. The apostle Paul says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3. The day of the Lord comes while they're saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. It comes upon like a thief without warning. Well, what I'm going to show you is that the signs here of the sun and moon being dark and the cosmic disturbances do occur before what's called the narrow day of the Lord, but they don't occur prior to the broad day of the Lord. Okay, remember, the Old Testament prophets use the term day of the Lord in two different ways. Sometimes they're referring to a broad period of time, but sometimes they're referring to a 24-hour day. So, for example, I've used this analogy numerous times. I would ask my grandpa who died at age 95, I would ask him, what was the gas prices in your day? And he knew when I asked him about the gas prices, I wasn't referring to a 24-hour day, but rather a broad period of time in which he lived as a young man. And he'd say, oh, there were like a nickel a gallon. That was the gas prices. But there was a time, I'll never forget, I brought my grandpa to get his hair cut when he was in his 90s. And I asked him, what was it like the day that John Kennedy was shot? And he knew then I was talking about a 24-hour day. In the same way, the Old Testament prophets use the day of the Lord, sometimes referring to a broad period of time and sometimes referring to a narrow 24-hour day. What's very interesting is let me lay out the case that here we have signs, again, the sun and moon being darkened before the narrow day of the Lord. Let me prove that to you. What's very interesting first is that the only other time in the Old Testament we see this phrase, the great, notice the phrase great and awesome day of the Lord. The only other passage in the entire Old Testament that contains that phrase is Malachi 4.5. And what's very interesting about Malachi 4.5 is that it also has a precursor prior to the day of the Lord. Notice Malachi 4.5, it says, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Notice this phrase, great and terrible, is synonymous with great and awesome. It's the same in Hebrew. Okay? Notice in Joel, the sun is going to be darkened and the moon. Notice in Malachi, Elijah comes. All right? Now, what I want you to see is that, let's start with Joel. When we look at Joel 2.30-31, the immediate context is just three verses later, we're going to get to Joel chapter 3. And in Joel chapter 3, it's all about what battle? It's about the final battle that happens on a 24-hour day when the Messiah returns to destroy the enemies that surround Jerusalem. In fact, turn your Bibles to that. Turn your Bibles to Joel 3, 1 through 2. Because I want you to see that in the immediate context, there's a particular battle that's being referred to that occurs on one day at the end of the 70th week. And I shouldn't say the battle occurs in one day, but the 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 finishing of the battle, the winning of the battle, occurs on one day when the Messiah returns. Joel three one through two. Please turn your Bibles there. I want you to see the context of Joel two thirty through thirty one, so that we know a particular battle is in mind. Joel three verses one through two, and we'll be studying this. But let's look at it—a foreshadowing here. Joel three one through two. Notice it says, "For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah." And Jerusalem, notice verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And it says, then I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Now, if you follow the rest of Joel chapter 3, the focus is on this last battle, where the Messiah is going to intervene, Yahweh himself, And he's going to destroy all of the armies so just as joel promised earlier that god would remove the northern army namely the assyrians and babylonians one day he's going to get rid of all their armies and that's going to happen in what it's going to happen on one day and so notice the sun and the moon will be darkened and it does happen within the 70th week of daniel prior to that last battle at the end of daniel's 70th week now i'll show you a timeline in the next slide but let's look at Malachi 4 five. How do we understand that Elijah comes before this narrow day of the Lord? Well, turn your Bibles to Matthew 17 verses 10 through 13. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 17 verses 10 through 13. because I want you to see that from Jesus' own words, yes, Elijah has come in a sense through John the Baptist, but there's also a future fulfillment that's going to come when Elijah one of the two witnesses is going to prophesy for the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. And notice, I think this is alluded to in Matthew 17, 10 through 13. Notice the disciples asked him a question. The question the disciples ask is, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, notice how Jesus answers. This is Matthew 17:11. It says, and he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things but i say to you that elijah already came and that they did not recognize him but did not but excuse me did to him whatever they wished so also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about john the baptist notice very interestingly in verse 11 jesus says elijah is coming and will restore all things The construction here is, on the one hand, that's still going to occur, but on the other hand, in a sense, he's already come in the form of John the Baptist. Jesus is not denying that he's going to come again, that there's going to be an Elijah-like figure. Now, where do we see that? Well, I don't have time to get into, once you know it, we are we got 10 minutes left. I'll show you next time we're going to get into the actual uh, schematic. We'll look at the timeline. I'll put this together. But in Revelation 11, don't turn to it now, just jot it down. We're going to read that next week. Revelation 11 verses 3 through 6, you have the two witnesses that come. One is like Moses and one is like Elijah, and they minister for the last three and a half years, or the great tribulation, or Jacob's great distress. And so again, that does happen before the narrow day of the Lord, but not before the broad day. Okay, that's what I want you to see. And again, both of these things are talking about the same time period because they're using the same phraseology, the great awesome day of the Lord, and they're both referring to that narrow day where the Messiah comes and defeats his enemies. Now, we'll get into more of this next week, but I want to open it up for comments, questions, ideas, that sort of thing. So uh, have at it, and um, let's talk some theology here. Talk shop, as they say.
0: Hi, Eric. I have one prime to pump. Yeah. you mentioned in 1 Corinthians 14 that um, we have a incident of the Holy Spirit poured out on all believers, and the result doesn't mean everyone has the office of prophet, but you may all prophesy one by one, Amen. let the others judge. Could right. you comment on what would be the content of that sort of prophecy? Does that mean one by one, they predict the future?
1: Good good question, Bob. No, um, and that's one thing that you and I have really stood against is this idea that, uh, remember the revelation, according to Ephesians chapter 3, was given to the prophets. So they're the ones who reveal mysteries, just as Daniel said in the book of Daniel chapter 2. So who is it that reveals mysteries and gives us revelation? It's the prophets and apostles. We don't have those offices. So the prophecy that's for believers today is to give understanding of scripture, to give implications and applications of scripture. Um, I think prophesying looks like, um, let's just take a, an example. Let's say you have an unbelieving nephew or niece and you sit down with them and you have coffee and you open up the scriptures and you explain what the scriptures are saying, you're prophesying to them, okay? Um, this is a form of prophecy or what we do at uh, Sunday school today. Where one of you will get up and say, You know what? This text means this. And we all sit and judge. Remember, in the context, the passage says, Let the others judge. Okay? Well, we don't stand in judgment of what Isaiah wrote or what the Apostle Paul wrote, the prophets and apostles, but we can stand in judgment with what other Christians say and say, Yes, that's valid because it lines up with scripture. Or someone might say, No, this is a better reading, this is a better understanding. And so, That's what we're doing. We're prophesying in a functional sense. And by the way, Bob, you wrote a great article in CIC where you distinguish those categories. Do you happen to remember the um, title of that article? I think the
0: title was The Prophetic Calling of Every Believer. There you go. I wish I could tell you the issue number, but I see Jessica reaching for her phone. She will find it. But let me, I can comment a little bit about what what we covered. Because that's a big issue. Because... The category error happened in some people who believe in Latter-day Apostles and prophets. And they took the office idea and said, Well, we still have the office. We're prophets. Okay, right. just like people in the New Testament were that were appointed by Christ and his apostles. And therefore we can do that sort of thing, like predict the future or claim to have revelations about things that will happen. But then when they've done so and have been wrong, they say, well, you can't apply Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 to us about it didn't happen because of First Corinthians 14, uh, you may all prophesy, but let the others judge. So when we prophesy, it may or may not happen. It doesn't have to be uh, accurate to the future event actually coming to pass. But it's a category error, okay? Because the prophecy in First Corinthians 14 is bringing forth valid implications and applications of scripture. And if somebody says, well, I think an application or implication is thus and so, and others say, no, it doesn't follow, and here's why you're not understanding the scripture correctly. Is that, and so that's in that Amen. article.
1: Exactly. Okay, that's so well they're make,
0: they're making air in their in early, that article and other ones that I've written. Now, right. <laughs> another thing we saw in First Corinthians 14, Eric, when you had us turn to it, it talks about exhortation there. Yeah. And so exhortation would certainly follow from the meaning of Scripture. Did you See find that? that?
1: 121,
0: okay. Spiritual Gifts, Revelation, and the Local Congregation. Okay, hold on here. I wrote two articles, it turns out. Okay. <laughs> the one on the prophetic calling of every believer is issue 95.
1: Okay, 95.
0: CICMinistry.org. And the other one was what?
1: Issue
0: 121.
1: Issue 121. Spiritual Gifts, Revelation,
0: and the Local Congregation. Spiritual Gifts, Revelation, and the Local Congregation. Go ahead. I'll have to read that one again. (laughs) (laughs) She thinks that's a better one. Um, Paul, you can come. I'll turn the mic on for you. Right here. On slide three, uh, you were mentioning about the living water and belief. Yeah. Uh, Reminded me very much of the woman at the well. And I believe, um, uh, would that
1: be uh, in in sync? Absolutely, Paul. So yeah, you have a Samaritan woman. The the Jews hated her. She thinks that uh, you find God at Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worship. And she sees this debate between Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim. Well, Jesus cuts the Gordian knot and says, if you want to find true living water, you come to me, the Messiah. And you, you worship God in spirit and truth. That's the idea. So absolutely. And what's beautiful about what Jesus is laying out in the New Covenant writers is when you come to faith, the living waters are going to come from you. In fact, notice on the screen again in John, 30, uh, John 7, 38, it says from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I wish I had the passages written down. We saw one example in Zechariah 14, where living waters are gonna come from the temple. You'll see that in Ezekiel too, in the latter chapters, the living water comes from the temple. Well, I think the image is you're the temple. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit, so living waters come from you. How do people find the path of salvation? Well, you, because you have living waters that are flowing from you. How do people in this world see righteous living? Well, from you, because from you come living waters. That's the idea. So, yes, we're filled with the Spirit, and therefore we have living waters. And, again, notice verse 39. This is the promise that, yes, it's by what? The Spirit. That's what Jesus, he inaugurates the possibility of the Spirit coming, and he's the one who sends the Spirit. So, absolutely, that's a very good question, Paul.
0: Yeah, very good. And also, it illustrates the whole nature of Joel's prophecy about all flesh. Yes. Here you have a Samaritan woman... And certainly yeah, not yeah. someone the Sanhedrin would have thought of would be the one who would right. have uh, living water. And right. it, well it really said. underscores all flesh being all believers. and um,
1: Jew but, and Gentile, yes. Yeah,
0: so it's very beautiful. It is. So everyone who knows God and believes has the spirit and can speak the truth. And the truth is binding not because of something about their status, social status, or religious status, because they're speaking forth the truth right from God's
1: Word. Right, right. Amen. You asked Eric what the three verses was that he recited about that earlier in the
0: book. He listed them really fast. Three verses about which? Zechariah, Revelation. Zechariah, Revelation. Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Revelation, what are those verses?
1: Oh, I'm sorry, um, what, let's see, what slide was I on when I gave those, uh, does anybody remember? Three.
0: Nancy Hazel. Nancy oh, Hazel. what are they? Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. Zechariah fourteen, seven. Zechariah fourteen, seven. And Revelation 22, 1 through 2. Revelation 22, 1 through 2. Thank you, Nancy. Thank all We're right. all prophesying one by one.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> um, and it says that each of you has a revelation, not meaning something God never said before, but a, an insight into what God has said. Amen. And that's certainly... And it really, in a lot of ways, the prophets of the Old Testament had new material. They predicted the future, and they spoke bindingly for to kings about... God's will for Israel and the seat of history. That's right. But prophets also uh, applied Moses, who had given the law.
1: And yeah. prophets
0: had a part of the prophets had a, a genre called a covenant lawsuit. Yeah. Amen. Here's the terms of the covenant. Here's what you're doing. You're failing. Therefore, you're under God's wrath. That was a, a, a role. A prophecy of prophecy, Old Testament. Now that is something that would fit with First Corinthians 14.
1: Yeah, Bob. You know what I love are those categories um, of. We always talk about foretelling. We think of prophecy primarily as foretelling the future. But as Bob was just mentioning, there's also what's called forthtelling. F O R T H. And forthtelling is where the prophet, as Bob just mentioned, holds people into account for breaking the covenant, breaking the revealed revelation that's already been given. So foretelling is giving revelation by the prophet. Foretelling is where the prophet holds people accountable for breaking revelation that's already happened. And absolutely, those are two things prophets did.
0: Well, we're a little over time here. Yeah,
1: thanks, thanks, Bob.
0: Okay, thank you. I'll close this in prayer. Okay. Dear Lord, thank you that we could gather and learn from your word about the outpouring of your spirit and about your gospel and your ways. Help us now and be with us as we go upstairs for the service. In Jesus' name, amen.